Good evening, everybody. Uh, my name is, uh, is Jonathan Hill, and uh, I'm Professor of International Relations at King's College London. And I am delighted to welcome you here to this evening's talk, which will be given by Dr. Tom Werner-Powell uh, of the University of Manchester. Um, Tom is going to present... Uh, our, his presentation is going to be based and connected to his, his recent book, Another Road to Damascus, an integrative approach to Abdel Qadir Al Jazeera, um, which uh, was, is it recently published or is it? it just published this year. Just yeah. published this year. Um, it's in a sense, a sort of launch, I guess. Why not? Wonderful. And, and only two weeks till Christmas as well, so your timing is absolutely perfect. Um, Extremely attractively priced as well, you know, for <laughs> stocking fillers. There's flies at the front if anybody wants one. Um, Tom's going to speak for about 40 minutes, uh, which should leave plenty of time for questions and comments afterwards. Um, we're going to run through to 8 o'clock. Um, please, can you um, put your phones on silent or, or turn them off uh, so they don't disturb Tom while he's uh, talking? Um, and also, when we get to the, the Q&A session, please, can you wait for the microphone to be passed to you uh, by... Sasha, sorry, um, uh, as part of the recording for the, uh, the podcast. Um, without any further ado, therefore, um, I'd like to introduce Tom. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Right, well, something of uh, the, the content of the first sort of uh, few slides, a few minutes of my talk has been preempted there a bit. We have an idea about what I'm doing here, what I'm going to be talking to you about. Golly, suddenly surrounded by recording devices. I'm sure the, the LSE's microphones are going to work pretty well, but, you know, if they don't, we've got backup contingency here. So the title of the talk, <coughs> Bonds, Bridges and Biography. You'll have to forgive me for the, the alliteration there. Uh, it won't be the last. Um, it amuses me. It keeps me happy. I hope it, uh, it doesn't offend your sensibilities too much. Uh, the subtitle course, is Lessons for the Present from the Father of Algeria. Um, by the Father of Algeria, this is a, a symbolic father, of course, uh, Abdul Qadir uh, al Jazairi, as he's often called, Abdul Qadir, Abdul Qadir Muhyiddin al Hassani, he's often called himself. Uh, his entire uh, ancestry going back, uh, his putative ancestry going back to uh, the, uh, the daughter of the Prophet uh, and her husband, uh, Ali bin Abi Talib is to be found within the pages of this book. So uh, yet another reason to make all of your friends and relatives Christmas a very, very happy one uh, with a wonderfully attractively priced, uh, fantastically uh, uh, enticing book. Right. So why have I chosen this, this title? I mean, there are a number of different different resonances I'm hoping to kind of get across here. By the end of the talk, I hope they'll all sort of uh, become rather more clear. More, most generally, though, I say that each of these stand for a different sort of general theme, uh, both in the life of the person we're talking about, in, in the way in which he's understood, and in the world in which we live, uh, and which, from which uh, we draw upon him, perhaps a bit of, uh, a bit of enlightenment, perhaps, that's not too much to ask. So, conflict, connection, and recollection 
are themes here. There are themes throughout the text. There are themes of a great deal of writing and discussion of the chant, uh, as will become more and more apparent. I'm going to start, though, with something a little bit closer to home. Um, as has been said, I am and have been for the last couple of years a uh, lecturer in modern Islam at the University of Manchester. Uh, Manchester, a lovely place. Many of us there have, have already learned, have, have lived there and spent time there in the past. If you haven't been, do come. Absolutely fabulous. Uh, but everywhere um, has uh, better times and worse. And, I mean, I don't need to tell anyone what happened uh, at Manchester Arena uh, on May the 22nd uh, of this year. Um, absolutely appalling events. My own daughter, uh, whose bout of fever unfortunately kept me up for the last few days, so if I seem particularly sleep-deprived, it's not obviously hallucinating, uh, please uh, bear that in mind and be, be, uh, uh, be uh, considerate of my, of my stay. She's too young, luckily, to have been caught up in this. The same can't be said for uh, a daughter of one of our new neighbours. Really, there's nothing that I can say to describe uh, that sort of event uh, beyond my imagination, really, my ability to imagine, let alone uh, to put it across. But when it happened, I mean, one of the awful things about violent events like this is that they tend to breed more violence. I mean, it's sort of, we're told by experts in, 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 in terrorism uh, and this sort, of, this sort of criminality, that one of the stated intentions, quite often, of people who do things like uh, murder children is to bring about a backlash, uh, to goad uh, one's adversaries, to kind of become a sort of part of a, a self-fulfilling prophecy, to, to sort of make matters worse. And it's certainly the case that while Manchester is a fantastically lively, multicultural city, I have heard, even in the year or so before this event, several stories from, from students of mine, many of whom are, from, uh, are of uh, South Asian extraction. Stories about the way they've been treated, uh, sometimes even attacked, uh, because of assumptions about their, their religion and perhaps ideas about culture and politics that might attend to that. So I had further fears for what else might come. I'm sure I wasn't alone in having that kind of reaction. Um, certainly one person who, who did have that sort of reaction was uh, the journalist Robert Fisk. Uh, many of you, of course, will have read his writing most often in The Independent, uh, Mr. Fisk is a man who has seen more than his fair share of violence over the years. Uh, I imagine uh, quite a few of you will have read at least some of his, uh, his book, Pity the Nation on the Lebanese Civil War. Now, Robert Fisk, in the wake of this incident, produced an article for The Independent, which attempted to introduce his British readership to... We must look to the past, not to ISIS, says Robert Fisk, or perhaps uh, an overenthusiastic sub-editor, for the true meaning of Islam. There's an image here of one of the most uh, famous, there's somewhere I can use a pointer, there are too many buttons here, I'm going to avoid using, which, which is the pointer button? Right, good, there we are. One of the most famous photographs of uh, Abu Qadr there, covered in, in honours which we'll get back to. Now, the reason I mention this is, isn't just to draw connections from the beginning between this 
ostensibly more historical discussion I'm going to give here, uh, or connections to uh, my own life and situation at the moment. But also, there's an awful lot one can say about this article. I'm not going to subject it to a, to a searching critical analysis as though it's a, a, a peer-reviewed uh, monograph, but it is worth thinking about. It's interesting, an interesting piece of rhetoric and piece of piece of persuasion in lots of ways. The, the avocado that we see in uh, Fisk's article for The Independent, he's described as a humanist, as a believer in human rights, as an admirer of the Greek philosophers, as a preacher of peace and brotherhood, as an interfaith dialogue man to please Pope Francis, no less. He's described as a Renaissance man and as someone who honoured the rights of man of American independence and the French Revolution. Now, there is a degree of sort of poetic licence being taken here, I think. Uh, and I can see why, of course. I mean, these are conspicuously Eurocentric, uh, to some degree anachronistic uh, uh, attributions to, to Avocado, uh, who certainly didn't... Uh, use, identify himself in, in many of these sorts of terms in so many words. But there are reasons why he does this uh, that go beyond the sort of, uh, the, sort of um, the simple rhetorical trick that if you want to praise someone, uh, if, you want to, if, you rather, if you want to reconcile people, pointing out their best elements to each other uh, is quite a good way of doing that. Well, you're fighting with her at school where you, you're both so clever and so sensitive. Surely you can get on. There is an element of that, certainly. There's also, I mean, this Eurocentrism, a scholarly audience is used to kind of um, having to control the, the you know, Saidian fury, the righteous indignation that rises within. But yes, he's, he is rising for a, a European or in, in this sort of Brexit climate, at the very least, a British audience and is trying to convince them of something. And he does some other things too, which I'm, I'll come back to by the end of the talk. Certainly, a lot of the reasons why he brings up these sorts of, uh, these, however uh, grandiose, uh, these, these, these sorts of, of praise, and the reason this image was used, this, this photograph here of, uh, of Avocado covered in, in, in metals, because of these events here, pictured again in this uh, conspicuously orientalist piece of art, which I've also chosen uh, with a little bit of irony as the cover for the book, uh, this is a depiction of the aftermath of the sectarian riots uh, which swept Damascus in 1860, uh, which we'll come back to in, uh, in the course of things, in the course of the lecture. There are certainly, so even notwithstanding the Eurocentrism, the anachronism and all of that, of Fisk's account, there are really plausible reasons, which were plausible at the time, the great cause of humanity, frequently invoked by the people, many of them Westerners, who sent him these, these medals. There are many ways in which we can see these sorts of connections. For most Algerians, even though a lot of these, uh, these um, perhaps more uh, pacific uh, facets of Avocada's character or mythos um, are increasingly popular in Algeria, saying to our friends from the Algerian uh, media here before the start of the talk, I was myself in Algiers a couple of years ago at a, an event uh, sponsored by the Red Cross and Red Crescent, which was devoted largely to drawing connections between uh, Abdul Qadir's uh, various policies uh, and statements 
and the then nascent uh, field and discourse of, of human rights and international humanitarian law. All that notwithstanding, to most Algerians, this is more the image uh, of Abdul Qadir. This is uh, a square in Algiers, the mounted horseman, the sword raised. Yeah, this is, this is uh, the warrior, the man who, who fought the French, as he did on and off for 15 years. A very different sort of figure, it would seem. I mean, there's a clear, there's a clear uh, juxtaposition sort of screaming at us here between these two images. And when we think about the various ways in which Abu Qadir is talked about and described uh, in the various literatures, popular and scholarly, we see all kinds of apparent contradictions. I mean, he's a, uh, he seems to be, at the very least, a man of many parts. So we've seen him described, not just in the 19th century, but into the 21st, as a representative of, of modernity, as a spokesperson for... Uh, and while also being a spokesperson, apparently, par excellence, for a very high medieval uh, understanding of the world, particularly understanding of, of Sufism. He's seen as a war leader, as a pacifist, an out-and-out pacifist, in fact, in some cases. Uh, readers, attentive readers of uh, Michael Cook's magisterial text on uh, commanding the good and forbidding the evil, Al-Amru al-Maruf wa al-Nahi al-Munkar, will recognize that uh, Abdul Qadir is presented as one of two only two uh, Sufis who seem very clearly, or most clearly, uh, to argue for outright pacifism. I'm afraid uh, I would recommend a, a revision of that particular uh, uh, passage, I'm sorry to say. We also see him as, as an anti-imperialist, particularly opponent of French imperialism. That's this, this uh, mounted Abdul Qadir with his sword raised. It's, uh, it's defiance towards the French. As it happens, the, the, that, that, that statue faces out to sea, more to the east than to the north, but we are to understand that it is the French uh, to, to whom he is standing up. He's also very widely known as a friend of France. There is a, there's a, while there's a square of Abdul Qadir in, in, in Algiers, there is also one, a rather less grand one, admittedly, but there is an, also a, 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 a place d'Abdul Qadir in, in, in Paris as well in quite central Paris as well. Uh, we seem described as ascetic, as world-denying, as self-denying, as otherworldly even. His kingdom was not of this world, one of his major uh, recent biographers uh, goes so far as to say. We also see him depicted as extremely worldly, as sort of Machiavellian, as a real politico, uh, as someone uh, really very cleverly using power and influence, uh, manipulating ideas, uh, in order to maximize his own power and influence. We see him as a nationalist. One of the reasons this is something that's implied, you know, this idea of his being a father of Algeria. I mean, this, I'm sorry to say, well, there are many reasons uh, why it's quite sensible to see him as father of Algeria. He certainly wasn't a nationalist. And quite a lot of things he said don't sit well at all with ideas of romantic nationalism. It's also presented as a cosmopolitan. Hmm. He's presented as a religious chauvinist particularly in uh, contemporary French sources. He was often depicted as a fanatic. In more recent writing, particularly um, scholarship of the 20th century, he comes increasingly to be something diametrically opposed, something wildly different, a pluralist, perhaps even a relativist, a perennialist. He's religious and he's political. Hmm. 
So, which is it? How is it that one person can have so many things said about them? That's sort of, in a way, the impetus for uh, the text here, the monograph that I'm uh, recommending, commending to all of you and to your, uh, to your uh, stocking fillers. But also, uh, it's a topic of, of my talk today. So how do, we, how do we react to this? I mean, one sort of simple way is to sort of reject it. I mean, these are, these are confabulations. These are, these are this is overactive imaginations. This is uh, uh, ideology in the kind of most dismissive sense of that term. It's nonsense. It's not real. People are imagining things. Maybe some of them are true. Maybe some of them aren't. But we don't need to worry about that. But we, what we do, we do. Not least because many of these, of these apparent contradictions aren't just manifest in the various sort of hagiographies we find written of the man, or in popular culture, or in the different ways in which he's remembered in today's Algiers and today's Paris, for instance, all of which can be connected to all kinds of political and cultural uh, developments and dislocations. When we look to the scholarly literature, we have to recognise another clear dichotomy. And it's one which I'm not the first to point to um, other scholars, not least uh, Pesos Chinar and uh, uh, David Dean Commons have pointed to this too, we tend to have really two literatures on Abdul Qadir, yeah, from a purely academic perspective. We have writing by uh, political and military historians, concentrating on his time in Algeria in particular, and we have a rather more uh, uh, religious studies approach to his latter years in Damascus. And there have been calls for decades now, on and off, for a more coherent, more complete account, which integrates these together. I mean, that's very much what I'm trying to do. This is what we, this, uh, the, 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 the subtitle of the book is, that it's an integrative approach. I mean, we're trying to bring things together here. And how do we do that? I mean, one kind of, again, if we're going to leap to an easy solution, is to invoke something like a, you know, coincidente oppositorum, you know, the, the harmony of, 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 of opposites in this, uh, this term taken from Cusanus. And certainly, I mean, Abdul Qadir was, among other things, he was a Sufi, a lifelong uh, Sufi, mystic, as some people like to translate that term, not necessarily un, uh, uncontroversially. Certainly there are people who have, have, have uh, taken this particular attack, say, well, look, this one step, you say, well, of course, of course, it's a, it's a product of uh, either of, of his mystical character or indeed perhaps something more grand entirely, a basic ontology of the nature and structure of the universe. But opposites uh, flow together. We can recognize uh, the light only because of the darkness. Well, that may, that's all very well and good, uh, not to be too um, sort of uh, dismissive of, of, of the insights of, of these sorts of traditions. But my job here, you know, is to... Uh, is to present something with a little bit more meat, meat to it, perhaps, you know, to, uh, to pay attention to the, the warning of uh, uh, the late Bernd Radke that just because the subject is mystical, that doesn't necessarily mean that the scholar is justified in further mystifying it. Um, on the contrary, I'm trying to do the opposite here, clarify things a little bit. Not only that, but something about the nature of these uh, apparent contradictions as they appear to us uh, in the various uh, receptions of Abu Qadir and re re reimaginings, uh, represent representations of, 
Ksul demands another approach, a more nuanced, more biographical approach. And that is that these contradictions are more often explained and have been more often explained not by appeal to some sort of transcendental or, or non-dual understanding of, uh, of ontology, uh, not some revolutionizing of, of uh, uh, epistemology through, uh, through gnosis or spiritual insight, but something rather more explicit. What we have time and again, sometimes extremely explicitly, and sometimes uh, as, a, as an implicit uh, but clearly present assumption, are a range of narratives of conversion, yeah. Abu Qadr's conversion. The reason why he seems to be one thing and the other is because he was one and then became the other. That explains everything. And it would. It also gives us our title, Another Road to Damascus. It's a reference um, some may immediately recognize to... Uh, the saying, the road to Damascus conversion, in which um, the uh, sectarian, severe soul of Tarsus on the way to Damascus is, uh, receives a, a sort of bolt from the blue, so to speak, and arrives as the universalist, tolerant, loving St. Paul. In a way, we see similar stories told about Abu Qadr. He was political and he became religious. He was nationalistic, and he became cosmopolitan. He was uh, an anti-imperialist. Uh, he became a friend of France and a loyal servant of empire. Now, the attract these, whether these, how much water these sorts of narratives, and I use the plural because there are several which position the conversion at different times in his life, uh, evidence it in different sorts of ways, and give a different sort of significance. So examining, questioning these narratives of conversion, these assumptions or explicit arguments that he was one sort of person and became an entirely different sort of person is sort of one of the main aims of the text. How are we going to go about doing that? How does the text go about doing that? Well, again, too much has been written, too much has been said about them to give an absolute, uh, complete reception history. This is doubly true when one considers him in terms of his uh, very uh, major significance uh, in Algerian culture and popular culture, a subject in which I'm less qualified to speak, I imagine, than many here, uh, let alone than other scholars. Rather, what I focus on is scholarly texts and scholarly reception. I bring them into dialogue with each other and with primary sources. In terms of primary sources, this text draws on and in the uh, appendices reproduces one or two of Abu Qadr's own writings, from letters to treatises to, uh, to uh, voluminous texts, such as the, uh, the Kitab al-Muaqif, uh, assembled from sort of lecture notes collated by his students during his lessons on, uh, on Sufism in Damascus. It also draws on many thousands of pieces of archival evidence taken from eight or nine archives uh, in the old world and the new. There's really quite a lot of primary material being brought to bear here. Um, I'm not going to be reproducing any of it in the, in the talk. Uh, again, if, if, uh, if uh, recognizing and trawling through in your own time perhaps the archives is something that appeals to you, yet another reason to make the wise choice of investing in this extremely attractive text. So, 
what am I doing with these things? Well, it's not just a critical, a critical reevaluation of the literature, the scholarly literature on avocado in general, nor even a, uh, a questioning of this notion of conversion from one sort of person to another sort of person. It tries to be constructive too, tries to show ways in which many of these accounts can be brought, or at least elements of them can be brought together. Many of them are, are, are very excellent, and in their own ways, I'm sure, superior to anything that I've been able to do. This is a very interdisciplinary piece of work. And part of the trouble with interdisciplinarity is people who concentrate in one discipline are pretty uh, invariably better at it than someone who has a foot in more than one camp. It's also constructive in the sense that what I'm trying to do is present actually a continuous and coherent account of Abdul Qadir, one which doesn't start from the assumption uh, of conversion uh, and which attempts throughout to privilege his own account of events, yeah? uh, to, account, to privilege primary sources uh, over the mythologies of incoherence, to borrow and invert um, Skinner's uh, uh, epigram about uh, uh, Machiavelli. So what I'm going to try and do now is give a little bit of a, an account of Abokhara, a little sort of life story, during the course of which, I mean, this may be, uh, may be uh, otios, I mean, this may be uh, unnecessary. Uh, some people in the audience here, I'm sure, are extremely familiar with this man. I can't assume that everyone is. So by the end of this, you will have a bit more of an idea who I'm talking about. While telling this story, though, I hope and try also to give something of a taste of the, of the ways in which uh, these, these uh, narratives of conversion are located and justified and how uh, the monograph I'm, I'm discussing today uh, dissents from that sort of received wisdom. So, Abu Qadr bin Hayyidin al-Hassani, Qadr, was born in, well, near uh, Al-Muaska, near uh, Mascara, uh, in or around 1808. Uh, he was the son of a prominent uh, Qadri Sufi and indeed uh, a Sharif. So when I said at the beginning of the, of the lecture that, well, look, uh, uh, this, this name, Abu Qadr Muhyiddin al Hassani, Muhyiddin, of course, is his father, uh, and Hassani indicates uh, descent through Hassan, son of Ali and Fatima. It indicates his Sharifian uh, status something he took very seriously. And indeed, some of his allies and occasional adversaries also took seriously. He uh, experienced the, the bulk of his education at the, at the Zawiya, which his father was the head. He was briefly and abortively uh, enrolled in an Ottoman school, I think partly uh, hostage to his father's good behavior, uh, not unconnected to the fact that he and his father spent long periods under house arrest. This is a period during which the Ottoman regime uh, in power at the time had seen quite a few rebellions uh, led by Sufis. It's something worth bearing in mind before we start from the assumption that Sufism is necessarily distant from politics. Perhaps, perhaps in some ideal form it is. Uh, but certainly, historically, a great many Sufis have been enormously politically active. That was certainly the case here. He performed the Hajj at a young age with his father. 
and on the way uh, became connected not only with the, the Qadiri tariqa of his, of his family, uh, but also with the, the Naqshbandiyya under Sheikh Khalid and Naqshbandi in Damascus. He later in life also took the Shazili uh, under uh, Al-Fasi. And on their travels, during which they, I think they returned twice uh, to Mecca and to Damascus, they also visited Baghdad and met the, the, uh, the Naqib al-Ashraf, of course, cementing further their status as Shurafa, as descendants of the Prophet, as well as, as people really switched into, plugged into uh, international networks of, of, uh, of Sufism. So this has a sort of double purpose, or a triple purpose. I mean, there's clearly the religious, the, the same sort of religious motives which would drive anyone to fulfill their, uh, their obligation and in many ways to delight performing the, the pilgrimage. It also took them away from a very hostile and suspicious Ottoman uh, regime and returned them to their homeland with many of their sources of, of pride, of legitimacy, of power, reaffirmed and redoubled. That would become very significant very quickly. As in 1830 the French invade, I'm going to give a, try and give an account of that, bills not paid, Fly whisks apparently involved. Um, awful lot of unpleasantness. Absolute pandemonium. The Ottoman Regency collapses very, very quickly. And we have a sort of, uh, well, it's a bit up in the air, really, who's going to rule over this area, who can lay claim to it. Certainly the French, well, from the, we all know with the benefit of hindsight that what would become of the French uh, colonization and increasing attempts to sort of francify Algeria wasn't entirely clear at the beginning. And there were, for some years in France, discussions about <coughs> what on earth we're doing there and what on earth we should be doing there. The Ottomans, for their part, weren't entirely happy to relinquish their claim. In fact, there are some Ottoman maps into the 20th century which still list Algeria as uh, part of the Ottoman Empire. We then also, of course, have uh, Sultan Abdurrahman in Morocco, very nearby. And he sees this as an opportunity, perhaps, to assert some of his own authority. Initially, this is thought, I mean, we have to remember, I mean, this period, this sort of crisp, clear colonial boundaries, and these clear borders, uh, like the one we may be about to uh, uh, find in, uh, in Ireland. Uh, <laughs> yeah, have I, got, have I got news for you, for you? is really anomalous, yeah? So really who's in power where is often really quite worth uh, uh, discussing, questioning. The Moroccans, for their part, made an early attempt to, at uh, perhaps positioning one of the, the Sultan's offspring uh, or as, a, as, a, as a sort of potential centre of power. That didn't go terribly well, and so it was decided that a wiser decision was to sort of have a proxy. And that proxy, the most obvious person who seemed presented himself for this, was none other than Muhyiddin, Abdul Qadir's own father, who was going to act as the representative of uh, Sultan Abdul Rahman <coughs> in, uh, in Morocco. Muhyiddin rejected this honour, or rather passed it on, uh, referring famously to a series of uh, supposedly veridical dreams, visions, uh, which pushed him towards passing over to his son, Abdul Qadir, 
So, in 1832, Abdul Qadir accepted the bayat, the uh, uh, oath of allegiance of several tribes, in a, a ceremony sort of stage managed to recall the, uh, the, uh, the life of the Prophet. And so he set about forming what's often been described as a state, you know, perhaps the forerunner of the modern Algerian state. He centralized authority in all kinds of ways. He created salaried uh, judges, qadis, a council of, uh, of, of, uh, which, of, of giving oversight to the actions of those qadis. He created a, a small standing army after the sort of Nizami model. He minted his own coins, Muhammadiyah. And he signed treaties, famously these two treaties, with France, which are discussed at some length uh, unsurprisingly, in this, uh, in this monograph. I'm not going to say all that much about them, that they had various things in common. Some of the things they had in common was that they were problematic, they were short-lived, they were... Uh, in each case, Abu Qadir claimed that it was the French who breached them. Perhaps they did. They were ambiguous, often very ambiguously phrased, often quite significantly different in their Arabic and French translations. In all of them, however, Abu Qadir failed to recognize uh, French uh, sovereignty in the way we would expect national treaties to do nowadays. He does uh, recognize the existence of French power, I think is the closest, uh, the closest we come to that. And each one asserts his dominion not over an area, over a space, in the way that perhaps a, a sort of blood and soil nationalist might do it, but over a confession. It is the Muslims over whom he rules and oh, the Muslims over whom the French are to have no claim. So they, they are to return Muslims fleeing uh, him to his power. There's more can be said here. We don't really have time to. Uh, they break down, and what we have is a lengthy period of what we can only really call asymmetric warfare. I mean, it mentioned that he'd, he'd created a sort of small standing army. Uh, they weren't terribly effective. Uh, most, of his, most of the battles were very much uh, hit and run sort of stuff. Um, very few standing. Five minutes? Good Lord. Right, asymmetric warfare didn't work very well. The Moroccans had been supporting him, getting very much more worried about whether they should, not least because the French diplomats, and we'll see an awful lot of evidence of this, were whispering in his ear, uh, encouraging every doubt that Abu Qadir is going to try and overthrow you. He's got similar sort of valid uh, background to you. He's very, very popular. He's a jihad leader. He wants your throne. This would become even more significant as Abu Qadr was driven out of Algeria, ends up launching lots of uh, invasions uh, from the largely chaotic, still rather chaotic, Reef, uh, which became an explicit causus belli of the Franco-Moroccan War, brief and humiliating, after which the French made it not just a suggestion, uh, but a requirement that Abu Qadr be tracked down, cracked down on by the, by the Moroccans, uh, which was very quickly, very near to, near to happening. Uh, Abdul Qadir in his final years was attempting uh, to make making overtures to European powers, to the Moroc, to the Sultan, basically attempting to get out with his skin intact. Didn't happen. In the end, on the verge of being uh, murdered, taken by the by the uh, by the forces of, of Abdurrahman, he agreed uh, free passage to the Levant with the French. Uh, 
on, on the guarantee that he would stop fighting against them. This is sort of the deal that was made. Often described as a surrender, that's uh, sort of fighting words in some places. What happened was, well, unfortunately this happened roughly the time that 1948, year of revolutions, he ends up being taken to France, captive there for many years. During that period, he's said to have had uh, one of his conversion experiences, opened his eyes to French civilization. We know this because at the end, during his stage-managed release by uh, Napoleon III, and we can see a lot of archival evidence of the stage-managing that was going on behind the scenes, uh, making, uh, he, he was presented as making a new departure. He would now no longer fight against the French. Various sorts of things were really just repetitions of promises he'd already made. Really all that was happening was that the French were now living up to their side of the bargain. He was allowed to travel to the east, absolutely not to Algeria, ideally not to any Arab country. He settled first in Istanbul, where the, where the court, uh, he met the Sheikh al-Islam uh, uh, and, the, and the, uh, the Sultan himself. The French diplomats were excluded, so both the Ottomans and the French attempted to claim them as his own, thereby using him as a proxy for their own claims to Algeria. He's one of ours, therefore his land is ours. He ended up in Bursa for a while, earthquakes, disaster, and uh, eventually he was able to kind of uh, get permission to be allowed to go to Damascus, where, despite the fact that the French attempted to travel with him, he refused to travel with French diplomats and arrived by himself, or at least as by himself as one can be, accompanied by a thousand armed horsemen. Uh, very, very pomp and ceremony, throwing his weight around very much right from the beginning. This is the period according to many of the Road to Damascus peer, uh, uh, narratives, during which he is not political, he's a quietist. Uh, absolutely not. That's certainly not how he's seen by any of the diplomatic materials. Not Ottoman, not British, uh, not French, not American. Uh, 1860, riots in Damascus, sectarian violence sweeping uh, the, the region. He organises a militia, saves the lives of ten to 15,000 Christians. Absolute heroism. Heroism interpreted in the West, and particularly in France, as a sign of his loyalty to France. Never mind the fact that most of them were not Frenchmen, they were Arabs. Never mind the fact that what he was doing is actually pretty uncontroversially what a, uh, a Muslim should be doing uh, for a, a protected minority. And notwithstanding any of the accounts here of his followers gave of it, this is how, it, how it's presented. Suspicion doesn't go away. Uh, Ottoman suspicion often redoubled. There's a great deal more can be said here. Uh, perhaps we can talk about it during the discussion. Uh, during the later years of his life, he repeats his pilgrimage. He is connected to various sorts of plots, again, which we don't have time to discuss. And he's buried at the side of Muhyiddin ibn al-Arabi, uh, one of the great uh, Sufis, the great mystics. Uh, he's buried in uh, Salihiyah in, in, in Damascus until he is exhumed in, in 1966 to be reburied in, uh, in Algeria. These two burials, in a way, stand for this dichotomous sort of narrative, just reflect, in a way, these sort of uh, uh, two visions we have of him, both one, so one political, one spiritual, one in the East, one in the West, one uh, Algerian, one Demacy, one treated by the humanities and one by the social sciences. What's going on here, I think, quite often, what, what the text tries to do is not only give an account which is continuous, which doesn't require these, uh, these, these conversions, largely by drawing on his own accounts, but also by analysing the, uh, uh, the texts uh, which have been used to prove 
that one kind of conversion or another has taken place. So there is, while there is this sort of uh, biographical narrative, there is also quite a good deal of philology. People ask me, I can give you examples, clear examples, where he has been quoted quite widely out of context to give a very different impression uh, uh, of himself than one would find when reading the text in context, even before one uh, looks at some of the archival records and some of the comments he made while friend of France about, uh, uh, well, about uh, how he'd rather the French weren't in Algeria, how proud he was of uh, how many he would boast, in fact, for many years afterwards of having killed 100,000 of them. Um, so really there's a lot more going on here than one might think. So what, though, can we learn from all of this? Well, is, it that, is the argument here that he wasn't this sort of bridge between East and West as he's often described? You know, on the contrary, I think he very much is. Yeah? Uh, sure, it's the case that in many ways uh, my uh, monograph here politicizes his spirituality. It's, it's arguably the case that, it's, that it, uh, it uh, uh, adds uh, spiritual and religious and particularly jurisprudential depth to some of the political analysis. Some of the political analysis of Abdul Qadir has been notoriously uh, thin when it comes to awareness of the history of Islamic thought, uh, let alone jurisprudence. But it's not just bringing these things together, it's also recognizing the distance between them. That's something I'm really trying to bring out, in a way kind of an opposite project to uh, uh, Fisk's rhetoric at the beginning, which uh, occidentalizes Abdul Qadir. In a way, I'm, I'm placing him very much uh, in, in a, a non-Eurocentric perspective. Not because he has nothing to say to Europe, but rather because, well, a bridge only works if it is crossing a divide, right? A bridge uh, from one place to the same place is no bridge at all. That's really very often what we see, both in accounts which try to occidentalize them or in, uh, in the various sort of disciplinary chauvinisms which say, well, as a political scientist, it's part of this, what uh, uh, Michael Frieden called the arrogance of politics, uh, that it claims too much for itself. Well, all there is is politics. And when he talks about religion, it's, 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 it's nothing, it's froth. It's, uh, it's uh, window dressing. All we need is politics. Conversely, we find religious scholars say, well, look, ignore the, his political activism. That was forced on him by necessity. He didn't want to do any of that. The real Abu Qadir, you can only understand by understanding him through my lens. Really, what is going on here is a plea for uh, uh, a, or a response to disciplinary chauvinisms and an attempt at bringing academic disciplines into conversation with each other, as well as providing a, a coherent peer, uh, d d uh, account of this person. We will also find in the accounts of his own writing that this mutatis mutandis is something which he himself engages in when he performs critiques of his own Islamic tradition. So, what we've got, well, we've got bombs and bridges, sure. He builds bridges and he, and he drops bombs, so to speak. But what we need in order to get a better understanding of him, uh, and perhaps even of ourselves, uh, as, as scholars, as, uh, as, as people, is not a simple solution, but a process, not an answer. Here, uh, realpolitik, uh, perennial philosophy, that's all we need to know. Biography offers us something else, which is perhaps more often, uh, or more, more often said, or more obvious to artists than it is to academics. But it is the case that we learn often in, in, over the longer term. And so when looking at a, at a life, and this is a very eventful and unusual life, we can see something 
which we otherwise could not. To return finally, for my last sentence, I will finish, uh, to Fisk's article. While I do, uh, I, I do perhaps demure from elements of its Eurocentrism, of its uh, Orientalism, uh, even though I, I'm very much on side with its intent, he does something very unusual at the end of it, which is that he recommends further reading. I mean, how many, how many art newspaper articles do you see that do that? And what he recommends are biographies, biographies of Abu Khalid. So perhaps there is something which biography uh, can tell us to help bridge some of these divides. Right. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Tom. That was absolutely splendid. And um, uh, you gave us a real sense of the multiple competing identities of the man and some of the reasons as to how these identities have arisen and are sustained. Um, we've got time now for questions and comments from members of the audience. Um, if anybody would like to ask one or say anything, please can you stick your hand up and Sandra will bring the microphone. Yes, please. Um, can I try to take some of the um, paradoxes or contradictions out of the picture you've presented? I think, in a way, Abdul Qadir is understandable uh, in terms, for example, of bombs. At the same time, he was campaigning resisting the French um, in Italy. The people were resisting the Austrians. There was a great deal of violence against the Austrian occupiers. All the Austrians were fellow Christians and indeed fellow Catholics. Now, I would see that as a case of patriotic national resistance to an occupier, which is perfectly understandable. As to the combination of spirituality and politics, that seems to me uh, it goes back to the Quran, because indeed the personality of a prophet, who was both an accomplished politician and a man of spirituality. Um, I'm sure you're familiar. Some people draw a distinction between the surahs of Medina, the surahs of Mecca, and the Medina surah is supposed to be uh, more political, the Meccan surah is more spiritual, and uh, there was actually a Sudanese politician and mystic, uh, Muhammad Mahmoud Taha, who tried to build. Now, that would not be acceptable to Muslims, but the point is there is a wholeness there, there is an integration. So I, I see, uh, although I don't know, uh, I, I wish I knew more about Abdul Qadr, I see in a way as very, under, very understandable. There is no great mystery. Thank you very much. Do you want to reply to that? Yes, um, yes. Well, I mean... Uh, I, without going so far as trying to give an overall account of, of Islam as, as some kind of a, a cosmic uh, reality or a trans-historical entity, let alone a, a Quranic exegesis, there are elements of what you're saying that I can definitely, I think, speak to in, in relation to the, the, this more limited context um, in which I'm working here. And that is, when you say... One of the things I'm, I'm getting from you, which I think, uh, with which I think I'd agree, is that I think quite often a lot of these uh, distinctions, particularly a distinction between um, religion and politics, for instance, irrespective of what one thinks about whether it is ultimately sensible to talk about these things as separate, and there are, there are good reasons for doing that, 
we have to recognise our own historicity and the historicity of that kind of language. Yeah? We, within a, in a, in a sort of Taylor sense, in a, in a secular age, find it second nature to make these sorts of distinctions. Through most of human history, most people would not have been making these sorts of distinctions. Quite a lot of the things which people have... Uh, have uh, one of the things you'll find is a theme in this, in this text uh, is, is my taking issue with... Uh, attempts by, other, by some scholars to present Abdul Qadir as, as bridging things, uh, as, as, as bridging modern, the, the modern and the pre-modern, or the religious and the political, when in fact it seems far more plausible uh, that he's uh, simply uh, continuing a very long-established tradition which doesn't systematically divide those things, at least not in the way uh, in which a secular scholar would expect them to be divided. Um, this is, ex is, is additionally uh, justified, I think, by, again, this move away from Eurocentrism. Uh, quite often people see, have, have presented him uh, as responding to ideas of uh, either in favour or against. I've seen him described in recent years and in scholarly texts as uh, 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 an opponent of uh, secular, secularism and secularity and as a proponent of secularism and secularity. Those things are, are said of him. Actually, I think that it's neither one nor the other. I, I see no real reason why I should believe that he had a, any kind of notion of what secularity is. Yeah? So when we have to, there's a lot of talk about uh, his, his, his views on, 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 on uh, rationalism in, in, in a kind of... Uh, Enlightenment sense and his repositioning of Sufism towards that rationalism, there's very little evidence in his actual writing that he was aware of it. You know, people have to study for years. It doesn't come automatically and it doesn't come by breathing the air of, of France that you, you, you breathe in uh, uh, the, 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 the Enlightenment. I mean, I wish that were the case. <laughs> some of my field work was in Paris, some of my archival work was in Paris, and it would have been very convenient to me. The fact of the matter is, and again, with this, uh, to refer to, uh, to um, Robert Fisk's uh, reference to the, the rights of man and the, 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 the French Revolution and the, the American Revolution, and there's a long history uh, of, of putting these sorts of ideas in his, in his mouth, it's not clear to me if he ever really learned French. I mean, there are suggestions later in life that he had picked up some level of French. I've never, never seen a single text written by him in French. And certainly whenever the French diplomatic sources talk about him later in life, he has a translator. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the, the notion that he was uh, imbibing, uh, you know, the, 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 the work of the encyclopedists in a language that he didn't understand during his imprisonment strikes me as, as really not justified by the, by the evidence. Uh, to take that as a sort of example. Um, yeah, I mean, what can go on? I mean, there's a, quite an, an awful lot about... That's part of what makes him such an interesting character, is that he has become, in a way, a, uh, a, a screen onto which successive generations projected different kinds of ideals, different kinds of ethics. I mean, I should take another Republican one as an, as a, as a, as an example. A recent French text on Abu Qadir... Uh, notes that he was, while imprisoned in, in France, he was offered uh, a palatial uh, accommodation in Paris with its own baths and its own mosque, fantastic, its own hunting grounds. Or he could uh, choose imprisonment in Egypt. And he immediately chose imprisonment in Egypt. 
He would rather this friend of France, this son of France, would have been, was happier to be in prison in a Muslim country than, uh, than Lord of the Manor in a French country. This, uh, this particular author tells us, is a sign of his great uh, uh, embrace of the republican virtue uh, of, of, of liberté. You know, he, he want, it, it, it's his freedom. It's because he's in some way imprisoned, even in, in, in a gilded cage in France. I mean, that is a very creative reimagining, I think, of what's, of what's going on. I mean, I try to take unimaginative <laughs> readings whenever possible in, in this case here. Yeah. Thank you very much. Um, uh, just here at the front. Yeah. Thank you very much for the talk. That was quite um, a very good account. I didn't know much about uh, Abdul Qadir until I came to this lecture, so thank you for that. I'm sorry um, it has to be a bit rushed towards <laughs> the end. Um, because your lecture is titled Lessons for the Present mm -hmm. from the Father of Algeria, my question is more a question about speculation. If he were alive, if he were heading the president of, I mean, if he was the president of Algeria, um, would he be friends with the Shiite Iran? Or would he be friends with Sunni <laughs> Saudi Arabia? And would you, perhaps you'd like to know about his marginal tax rate. <laughs> I mean, how would he go about I mean, building bridges between these two communities, I mean, that, which that, are I, loggerheads today? Again, I mean, that's that, that's so speculative. And the thing is, in a way, I mean, it's an interesting idea, but at the same time, it it, it sort of runs. I think he'd be more than anything else. He would he would be very confused, and he would require an awful lot of things explaining to him. Uh, I mean, the whole structure of the modern Algerian state, um, some things will be un he will understand. He'll understand we've, we've got currency, we've got, uh, we've got soldiery, you know, we've got libraries. Great. Uh, nationalism, for a start, as an ideology, wouldn't fit very well. I mean, you see, I mean, I, I've only once or twice seen the word Watan, uh, nation in his writing, and he's not using it in the modern European sense of na nation. He means uh, terroir, he means like the place in which a particular tribe tend to be milling around. And the context in which he mentions it, and he does this repeatedly uh, throughout his time, fight, both fighting the French and then uh, having quote-unquote surrendered to the French, the last thing he does before boarding his ship, which he thinks is going to take him to Alexandria, but actually takes him to uh, four years of imprisonment in, in various palaces around France, he writes to friends and relatives saying, uh, migrate, migrate. The French are in control here now, but God's earth is vast, you know. Migrate, move somewhere else, you know. Don't be like the, 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 uh, the Mudajars, you know, who remained in, in, in Spain after the Reconquista. Don't be like them, they're hypocrites. Migrate. Um, so, yeah, um, at the same time, I think... Uh, one of the things in which one of the things people often say about him, and not just after some kind of conversion, uh, one of the sources I draw on is a, is a I mean, is a, a German source. I mean, there there are texts in I think four languages are, are used for this, and some of them are, are German as well. There's some of them. There are, there, one of the things that came out a lot during his uh, his war with France was uh, various sorts of uh, memoirs, m memoirs by people fighting him or people who were held captive by him. And one of the things in which they all agree uh, is how extremely uh, patient he was with um, Andersdenkende, with people who think differently from himself. Yeah? Um, that's uh, a, a, a virtue which we see certainly his, even though there were people calling him fanatic at the same time, those who liked him when they praised, those who praised him, when they praised him, 
tended to praise him for his, his openness and his tolerance towards others. So perhaps he would have uh, tried a more diplomatic rather than one-sided approach, if I were to be speculating. Similarly also, um, quite a lot, one of the sort of uh, topoi of his uh, discussions of uh, his sort of Sufi exegesis of the Quran, influenced particularly by Ibn Arabi, which we see in the, the Kitab al-Mawakif, he argues again and again and again against um, what he sees as chauvinism, people claiming to know more than they do. Um, there's, an, there's an almost sort of apophatic element sometimes. You know, God is always beyond whatever uh, idea about him we can, we can have, whatever kind of belief system, whatever creed we can build around him. Some people, some of his, particularly his French uh, uh, translators in the 20th century and commentators in the 20th century have have taken that a step further and turned it into a kind of a, 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 a thoroughgoing religious pluralism. Um, I think that's, again, this is getting, look, there are, there, there are, there's quite a lot of sort of philo- philological discussion here about how he's translated and, and how emphasis is shifted and what sort of editorial decisions are going on and what sort of uh, uh, um, effective histories are being brought to bear on the text, what sort of, uh, how the... The, the traditions. I mean, most of the his major major translators early on come from a uh, a, a philosophical or religious tradition in France, uh, which sees him as part of its uh, its silsila, so to speak, its 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 spiritual heritage, um, as well as 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 well not least as his great influence uh, Ibn Arabi. So there's an awful lot of pressure to see him in their terms. Um, and sometimes that's great, and certainly they did work which no one else did. Uh, but sometimes that can also be potentially misleading or not giving the whole picture. So I'm not saying he would necessarily be... Uh, he might take sides, but uh, I would hope that he would be uh, um, cautious and diplomatic about it. Uh, I mean, this is actually something... I mean, it, it comes go back to another thing. We come back to, the, to the, the first question, this issue about sort of invasion and whether he's... Uh, political or, 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 or not, one of the points, which also relates to the present day in a more uh, um, programmatic, uh, more, uh, I don't know, uh, a general, more abstract fashion, is that, well, one of the ways of explaining why, when you, there's a sort of, in a way, there's a sort of, uh, sort of straw man created by other sides. Well, why, you know, if, if, he's, if, he's, if he's political, surely, if he's a fighter, surely he should be fighting all the time. And wherever he's not fighting, that's a sign that he's not really a fighter. Uh, I mean, that, I'm, I'm, on, I'm, on, I'm, I'm only slightly caricaturing a view which has actually been put by a fairly significant scholar of Al-Qaeda who actually comes close to saying that. On the contrary, I think uh, one, of the, one of the things that's interesting is that, is that it tends to be during power vacuums that he becomes most active. Yeah? So during the French invasion, or the, uh, again in Damascus, during his sort of apolitical period, he's most famous for doing something fantastically political and military, right? leading armed men uh, against uh, rioters, against sectarians. I mean, it's, uh, it's pretty obviously a, a military and political maneuver. Um, Alexis de Tocqueville uh, wrote a little bit about Abul Qadr um, early on uh, as part of his often quite regrettable writing on Algeria. People probably know that he was a bit of a cheerleader for the, uh, the colonization project. But he had a great sort of bon mot, which is uh, 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 chaos gave birth to his power. Yeah. So there's a sense in which, particularly if we interpret him in more conservative sort of 
lines, which I think my, this text in some ways does. Um, I'm not, not big C conservative, um, Theresa May, but uh, this, that, that sort of, it's, it's in, that goes some way to, towards explaining that too. Um, anyway, yeah, sorry, that's, a, that's sort of slightly tan tangential to both. Okay, thank you very much. We've got, uh, let's take two questions together. Gentleman in the coral shirts with the microphone, if you could p then pass it forward to the gentleman one, two rows in front of you, take a couple of questions, and then we'll get some more straight after that. Please. Um, thank you for your presentation. Uh, my question is uh, more about his late life. So after his, uh, his fame and heroism, uh, he was highly respected in the, uh, by the Ottoman Empire and sort of treated as perhaps uh, a, a diplomat in certain instances, uh, if one might say. Um, what, what, what was the sort of um, position he took uh, in, his own, in his own life regarding his, his late life on, on what, what sort of uh, leadership he took? Leadership. Before you answer that, yeah. if, if you could just pass the microphone forward to that gentleman. Perfect. Yeah, I was just wondering, could you place Abdul Qadr as a part of a wider uh, sort of phenomenon of warrior Sufi scholars? Like next door in Libya, decades later, you had uh, Umar Mukhtar, who was part of the Sanusi order. You had Ramadan Swahili as well. Or is he more of an aberration? Because he had many allies uh, who sort of betrayed him, went for the palatial mansions and the money. Yeah and were warriors at heart, not really scholars. So where does he fall? Is, is this a part of a bigger phenomenon? or? Um, okay, I, I'll start with the second part, because I'll, I'll do it less justice, um, because that's a big question. Um, certainly, I think he can be related to an awful lot. I mean, he's not that atypical. In general, actually, one of the themes, one of the sort of uh, recurring features of, of this monograph is normalizing him within a, an Islamic context and within a... Uh, a North African context. You could, as well as going forward, go back, you know, and talk about someone like uh, uh, Osman Danfodio, you know, founder of the Sokoto Caliphate in northern Algeria. I mean, northern uh, Nigeria. Um, there are all kinds. Of, but I mean, you have Sufi scholars involved in warfare uh, forever. I mean, that's not a that's not a very new uh, new development. Um, whether they, you know, they founded dynasties. Uh, even today, if you talk to a, to someone, to a politician in Central Asia, uh, they regard the, the local sheikh or peer as, a, as a, an entirely political animal, and sometimes they still are very obviously political. So, I mean, you can see similar things. What I wouldn't like to do uh, is, is, to, is to kind of essentialize that and say, well, look, there is this kind of, you know, scholar, soldier, Sufi, you know, and these are all floating around in Plato's heaven, and, and all you know. These are just sort of. Uh, and once we understand that, we understand all of these historical figures. On the contrary, very much what I'm going for here is is is, is looking more at the difference and the particularity. Hence, again, the biographical focus rather than uh, just making grand grand sweeps. Uh, but you, I, mean, I, I mean, I definitely take your point that there are, that you, we're not short of people to whom we can compare him at all. Um, and the previous question was, oh... It was uh, uh, his, his position with the Ottomans. Yes, so the Ottomans, absolutely. he played. Well, yes. Um, yes and no. He was certainly honoured by the Ottomans. Um, after his, uh, his actions in, during, the, during the riots, he received uh, uh, the Mejidiyya, the highest... Uh, uh, official honour just recently, a, couple, a year or two before created, but he was one of the first recipients of this high state honour um, and he was 
he seems to have been trusted a little bit more than many of the other uh, notables of Damascus in the days immediately afterwards. That said, however, uh, oh, and I should also say his influence was considerable, uh, particularly through the, the uh, uh, North African uh, immigrant community, which is just growing and growing and growing throughout this time. I mean, you can see, for instance, things like uh, the, the, the office of Meliki Mufti, uh, which had long been in abeyance in Damascus, is reformed uh, and staffed by a friend of Abdul Qadir's, uh, of course, uh, because there are so many Malikis in the, in the city all of a sudden. You know, there are so many uh, North Africans uh, all of a sudden. So he's, he's influential through them. But his, his, influence, his influence tends to be, and it's something that I describe uh, using a lot of archival evidence, tends quite often to be, to be uh, not really so much at the service of the Ottomans or of the French, both of whom claim him as their own, both of whom pay him, um, uh, what do you say, pensions. Um, he plays them off against each other. Uh, and uses his his status as a way of basically making life better for his flock, so to speak. So if people are being accused of crimes by one lot or the other, he'll ask the other side to intervene on, on their behalf, or he'll demand extra rights or what have you, um, or ask for clemency, uh, not least for his son, uh, Mohiddin, who attempts to foment rebellion uh, again in, 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 in Algeria uh, during Abu Qadir's lifetime against his, his, uh, his, uh, his father's uh, advice. Now, in terms of one of the things that really comes through in the archival materials is how little anyone trusted him. The French, even while describing him and publicizing him as a friend of France, absolutely did not trust him uh, and were very wary of any sign that he might give that he's independent of them. And he gave them plenty such signs. There was quite a lot of back and forth and toing and froing. There are several embarrassing little episodes um, I, I dis- describe in this, in this book where he really goes out of his way, really, to demonstrate that he's not the creature of France, uh, which one doesn't see represented I- as much as they might be in the French uh, literature on Abu Qadir. I, I, I probably shouldn't even have to say. Um, similar to the Ottomans, an awful lot of distrust. Uh, the French, I mean, the British and... Uh, uh, and the British dipl- diplomatic uh, records at the time are similarly full of slightly ominous forebodings. Uh, whenever they comment on how enormously popular he is, a, he might yet, you know, the, dis- the, the dog may yet have his day, he may overthrow things. At one point, he, um, he was offered a, a, a tract of land near Suez uh, as part of his, his uh, patronage of the, of, the, of the canal project. And he was, a, he was very much in favor of, of throughout his life, including in Algeria. Uh, not, so there's no kind of clear before-after conversion thing here. But he was very keen on uh, certain kinds of technical modernization uh, in terms of uh, agriculture, transportation, that sort of stuff. Anyway, uh, Ferdinand de Lesseps and the, the, and the Suez Company want to build him uh, a, because they're admirers, want to want offer him some land. And the uh, Egyptian government, which is, of course, uh, nominally Ottoman uh, at this time, um, absolutely refuses in the strongest possible terms to tolerate Abdul Qadir being on Egyptian soil because they were so worried that he might overthrow them. Uh, um, there is, uh, one finds records to the end. There's even sort of, there's occasional bits of, uh, bits of, uh, 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 more dividend impera, you know, as the, di- as the diplomats of the various empires who had a claim on him uh, or an interest in him 
I, have, I haven't had time to talk about the, French, the English interest, which is a, a long-running one, and there's a long connection. It was largely British arms that he used to fight the, the, the French. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, a fact which, which he would occasionally remark on while reminiscing uh, during his Friend of France days, uh, much to the embarrassment of the, the French translators present. Mm. There was this, often this people would, they would attempt to turn them against each other. So one interesting example of this it was, is, a, is a, something we find in the archives in Kew, uh, where uh, the, the, uh, uh, the foreign office gets wind from the Ottomans that, uh, that Abu Qadr's fa- hostility to France is just feigned, and they're actually working together uh, to put him on the throne in, in, in Syria and, and drive the Ottomans out, which is really interesting on a whole... My, I mean, whether it's true or not, and it probably isn't, uh, as a story, it tells us an awful lot, right? It tells us, uh, for a start, that the, the Ottomans are worried about him. Uh, it tells us that the Ottomans uh, assume that the British will also be worried about him. And it assumes that the British and the Ottomans both know that well into his later life, Friend of France period, he's still making noises about uh, hostility to the French, uh, the American archives record him making passing comments to the, to the American diplomats, saying, well, wouldn't it be great if, uh, if you could kick the, the uh, uh, paraphrasing here, of course, if you could kick the French out of Algeria the way you, kicked, you just kicked them out of Mexico. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, this is well into the Friend of France period here. Um, so, yeah, there we are. I mean, they never really get I mean, This is one of the reasons why uh, the idea of him being a quietist in later life has legs and is, has a plausibility to it is that it's surprising how little official status the Ottomans give him. In fact, the local notables freeze him out more than anything else. They don't want anything to do with him. They resent him. He's, a, he's an upstart. He's a blow-in. Uh, and right from the beginning, he's throwing his weight around. He demands to be given a, a, a palace to live in when he first arrives in Damascus. And he's given a palace that, I think, belonged to a, a bay or some fantastically uh, important person. And he declares it's not good enough and he wants a better one. Um, they're furious with him, absolutely can't stand the man. Um, even respect to the fact, even before you get into the whole questions about what was going on during the riots. I mean, there are people still researching that now. Um, one account, and a kind of standard account as well, it was, it was Dozies and Christians hating each other. You know, cats and dogs, they're always at it. Uh, actually, the view at the time, uh, certainly by Western diplomats, and I, uh, uh, was that, they, that there were senior Ottoman officials uh, involved and complicit, and that's actually that's also a view that seemed to have been taken uh, by by the Sublime Port, in that there was a wave of hangings of arrests and hangings of Ottoman uh, of senior Ottomans in Damascus, the kind of people who didn't like Abdul Qadir beforehand, uh, because of their involvement in the sectarian violence. So yeah, um, very much involved, very very much politically uh, significant, but. Uh, very much not an Ottoman ambassador uh, because they wouldn't have trusted him as much as anything else, I think. Okay, let's take two more questions. We've got one at the front and then at the, just here at the side and then we'll take some more after. Yeah, my question is, basically, what's the, uh, the message of, uh, you know, the Abdul Qadir, you know, as, because you mentioned many characters, including he was a, a religious leader, his statesman, he was an army commander, and uh, basically, uh, I think, you know, Robert Fix, you know, he mentioned all those things in his article, including, you know, he was tolerant, he was open uh, to other religion. But, you know, what's the, according to you, what's the message to send today to those extremists mm. who are trying to, uh, you know, to get involved politics and religion 
and uh, using, you know, like force to try to get to power, you know. Mm. But, you know, Abdelkader, you know, he did, he did completely the opposite. Mm. And he, 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 he tried to send a message to the entire world at that, uh, during that period mm. that, you know, we should live together and we coexist, whatever your religion or whatever your uh, philosophy. Thank you very much. Um, just to take the other question from there. Thank you so much. I have a question. I didn't understand the relationship between Abdel Kader as uh, a fighter mm. who spent all his life uh, to fight French colonization and after that, after a few years of uh, imprisonment in France, he yeah. became friend and the son of France mm. and mm. France, as you said. I did, I could, I cannot uh, understand this uh, conversion and uh, this uh, switch from a fighter mm. to a friend and a son. Yeah. Especially from a person like Amir Abdel Qadir. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, so, first of all, uh, in terms of um, sort of uh, tolerance and ecumenism, um, absolutely. Uh, uh, he was uh, noted throughout his life. Uh, for his respect for other uh, faiths. One of the criticisms he had of the French in, uh, in, uh, in, in Algeria wasn't that they were just that they were Christians, but that they were, that they were unbelieving Christians. They didn't build churches. They didn't have priests present at negotiations. Um, they had uh, prostitutes, which is something... The first colonists, colonists were very many more men than women, and there was a great deal of prostitution. Uh, and he says, well, look, we don't want the, our society to be uh, corrupted in this sort of way. Very impressed by the, 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 the Madeleine, in particular, in, in Paris. You know, sort of, and it, there's an awful lot of, of uh, really ecumenical, you might call it, content in, in, in his actions and his writings throughout his life. Um, I discussed them in, 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 in in quite a, quite a lot of depth, particularly in, in, in later chapters. Um, that said, it should it should also and it's of a particular sort. It wasn't it wasn't a uh, it wasn't oh he was he was he respected others, but not by saying everything's the same. Yeah, he never stopped as far as I could see being a Muslim. Yeah, he would respect Christians. But there are quite a lot of sort of occasions uh, in which people say that there's, there's one uh, uh, um, famous account during his captivity when uh, a young curé wanted to come and see him and convert him to uh, to make him a Catholic, and he said, "Oh, brilliant! Let him come. He clearly has good intentions, you know, uh, and it'll be a great source of pride for me when I convert him to Islam." <laughs> you know, and one sees things like that throughout. So, I mean, that's one of the circles he sort of squares here, and it has to do with he's bridging divides, but, he, but not by pretending there isn't a divide. He doesn't say Christianity, Islam, Judaism, Zoroastrianism, it's all the same stuff, you know. You know uh, they're all, all, they're all, choose whichever major religion, they're all pretty much the same. He doesn't say that, but he's uncommonly open and respectful uh, of others. And also when you talk about warfare, I mean, uh, and this also goes back to some of the you know, question about... Uh, how he might respond to some of the people who uh, invoke uh, Islam or, or jihad nowadays. Well, he was conspicuously... When he fought the French, he was... Uh, he, uh, while we, did, we didn't have the Geneva Conventions at that stage, um, the Battle of Solferino, I think, hadn't happened yet. You know, the, all that, those wheels were still in motion. He famously treated his prisoners extremely well. 
uh, better than the French. I mean, this is the time the French were gassing people in caves. You know, they, they, they were, there was an up, uproar all around Europe about how, particularly people like Bougeot, how they were conducting this sort of scorched earth warfare, whereas he was very high-minded and in ways which you would justify in terms of uh, in terms of Islam very frequently. You know. Similarly, later in life, when we have the, the, these riots in places, during this, this one breakdown of order, he's in Algeria during this, uh, 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 after the invasion, the collapse of the regency, he's trying to, in a way, reconstruct order, and according to the best model of which he's aware, which is one founded on, on, on Islam and often very traditional forms of Islam. Some of, one of the texts I look at the, in, the, in the book that he, uh, that he uh, authored during this period is uh, in many ways a fairly conventional bit of uh, jurisprudence. You know, he was very, he wasn't necessarily the best faqih, but he clearly thought that fiqh is something that we need to be appealing to, not just a flag, not just saying, you know, uh, Allahu Akbar, and that's, that's all we have to do to be Islamic. There, there are rules, there are there is precedent. We need to work all these things through. Again, when the when order broke down in, 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 in Damascus, he was fighting Muslims, or nominal Muslims, and justifying, when you look at his accounts and the accounts of others, he sees himself uh, less as, 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 as uh, of course, he's represented as, as fighting for France. Uh, he's, he's fighting for, he, this is just what the law demands of us. These people, they're not, they're, 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 what they're doing is putting themselves outside of the law. Um, so, I mean, I think he would, if you want to guess what he might say about some, you know, uh, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi or someone like that, ask, ask a, a, a Maliki faqih. You know, <laughs> that's, that's probably what he would do. Um, I don't know, again, speculation, uh, which we, we, we have to be careful of. Um, in terms of this uh, question about how does he go from one to the other, I mean, kind of my argument is that he doesn't really. Um, it's certainly the case that there are, even notwithstanding all of the other evidence I've got of him sort of not doing all that much, or, or criticizing France, even during his quote-unquote friend of France age, there are one or two very stage-managed uh, events during which he seems to make these sorts of declarations. And I think when one looks at those and looks at them uh, carefully, uh, a number of observations can be made. First of all, uh, one can see that the things that he is uh, uh, offering verbally promising in those occasions to uh, Napoleon III uh, rather, uh, 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 are exactly the same things that he promised to uh, Le Mauricier and, uh, and uh, uh, Henri d'Orléans uh, when he, when he quote-unquote surrendered. He's not giving them anything new, he's just restating it, but in a diplomatic, emollient, uh, emollient sort of way. Um, some of the, the clearest of this sort of language comes in the letter that he gives Napoleon and we see from the archives he, that he originally was a discussion about how to stage manage it. He wanted to give a speech thanking him. Um, but he was convinced that it would be better to give a, give a letter. Um, there are all kinds of reasons we might have used to that. There is also mention in the, record, in the archives that, the, that this letter then had to be modified a bit. What modifications they made, again, it isn't clear. But what they wanted, and then as soon as it's, it's there, it's like, okay, immediately put it to Monsieur uh, Algerien, to the to Mubasha, to the, all the, the newspapers in Algeria. That's what they wanted from this. They, you know? So there's this. Insofar, though, as he did maintain some kind of connection, which he did with France in his later years, it wasn't entirely he, w- he was happy to draw a stipend, though he was, or that he was happy to use French influence to counterbalance uh, Ottoman influence and... Uh, 
uh, and, and uses a sort of patronage and uh, a better life for his community, though he was. Um, he, if we don't, if we put the 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 the, uh, uh, the the riots in Damascus aside, he only really ever does one thing for France, which is he sends a, a bit of money, which is of course France's money that he's sort of sending back, uh, uh, nominally uh, for I think widows of the recent then recent uh, Franco-Prussian War. He sends it a couple of years after. I think it's 73 that he sends it. I mean, the war is over by 71. Um, uh, but he sends it in the context of also asking for clemency for his son, Mahidi. So he, there's one occasion where he seems to come, come closest to actually just clearly doing something for France. He's also getting something very important back, uh, getting his, his son back. So it's, as a kind of agent of France, he's not obviously all that useful. Actually, the case, again, the case in Damascus, I remember a few years ago, uh, uh, I, I used to live in, in, in Damascus, um, there his, his, one of his, his house there was being renovated, and there was a piece in, in, the, in the newspapers in which it, it, it talked about, it interpreted his, his, defense, his defense of Christians uh, not as a service to France, but as an attempt to keep the French out, right? which, I mean, is also plausible, because it, this is, this is uh, because it might be used as a pretext for uh, French military intervention on behalf of the, the Christians, uh, which is actually also what happened um, and what had been going on for quite some time before. Um, so there's this as well. I will, though, say against all of this sort of cynicism that it's better understood his relationship with France, I think, and this is my hunch, and we can't. So there's a limit to how much we can sort of see into into uh, into the, man, the dead man's heart. I think it's often better understood uh, in terms of patrimony uh, or, or patronage than uh, uh, patriotism. Uh, if you'll pardon the uh, annoying alliteration yet again, his relationship is very clearly with Napoleon III. When he addresses France, he's not addressing France. He never addresses France. He addresses Napoleon III. When he says, I'm one of your children, it's Napoleon III's children among whom he counts himself. And it's, again, also part of a diplomatic language which he'd previously used uh, of, uh, from the very first days of his imprisonment with Louis-Philippe or La Mauricière and that he used with, uh, uh, towards uh, uh, Abdurrahman in Morocco, you know, all people whom he distrusted very significantly. So we can, you can take it with a grain of salt. Certainly, though, it was... Napoleon III, who did finally make good on his promises uh, for all kinds of reasons, made him look very good, made uh, one glory for himself at the expense of the House of uh, Orléans, uh, not least. Uh, but it also... This, this connection continues. And after the death of, of, of Napoleon, the, Napoleon III, uh, again, what is it? it must be about 73. Uh, four, what is it, 73, 4, anyone remember? Anyway, in that sort of period about 10 years before Abul Qadir's own death, he sends his condolences to, to, to the widow, and that's sort of it. His, his contact with France drops off considerably. His interest seems to be very much more with, a, if, as far as we can guess, a genuine gratitude to a man who released him, you know, who made good on a promise. He even says, you have fulfilled the promise that you yourself didn't make, which is actually, I mean, if you want to, I mean, not getting too much into fiqh here, uh, generally, if you make a promise, you have to fulfill it, not someone else, not a proxy, you know. So it's quite a big deal. Yeah, um, so insofar as, insofar as how do you manage this, this, this uh, conversion, I'd say, well, you probably don't. I think the account that I give uh, doesn't require him to have been converted. 
although it does uh, suggest that he was very grateful to a man who did him a very enormous favour. Yeah. Okay, we've got time for one more question, I'm afraid. Uh, the gentleman in the black polo neck sweater, just there. Um, we, we've got to try and finish as close to eight o'clock as possible. So, yeah. Thank you for your talk. It was really interesting. Picking up on what you were just saying and what you said a while back about uh, Kada's interest in, as it were, technology, technique, yeah. um, and his great feat to elude the French for whatever it was, two, three, four years before he's finally caught. Mm -hmm. Is it an accident, or is it very deliberate, that the French hold him in this incredible medieval Renaissance chateau where the crown, 300 or so years before, invites Leonardo da Vinci to work that's where there, he's buried, of course. And that's where he dies, and he's buried in this incredible yeah. uh, chapel that hangs off the edge of the wall, very dramatically, yeah, yeah, over yeah. the town. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And where, in a sense, they sort of show him you know, this one of the roots of modernity, actually, you could say, the drawings of uh, Da Vinci, the, the, first the drawings of war machines, and all the rest of it. So he's a great warrior. planted there, the French formal garden as well. And, you know, 40 or 60 of his, of his court die there, and mm -hmm. they're now memorialized in this rather beautiful memorial in the gardens. It's an incredible place to visit. Yeah. So, I don't know, what do you think? Is it an accident, or is it very deliberate that they place it in that particular chateau in Bois? Well, I mean, he, they had actually placed him in a series um, of, of, of palaces, and that, that's the one where he spends most, most, uh, most of the time. I mean, in terms of what the significance of that is, and, and how sort of, uh, how opulent it was, um, I mean, that, that is something I discussed to some extent, not least because one of his uh, more recent, more, one of the more recent bits of scholarship on him um, also positions a conversion experience there, but not a conversion to France, but a conversion to uh, uh, a, a, a particularly Eurocentric version of the Sufism of Ibn al-Arabi. Um, and it seems to be one of the things that occurred to me, I mean, when reading this, is oh, okay, by this stage he's already been at war for many years. He's buried children, uh, his own children. You know, he's gone through all kinds of hardship. It's not obvious that this is the worst thing that's ever happened. That said, as you say, I mean, people did die. It wasn't, uh, and people have often been kept in these sorts of palaces in actually quite horrible uh, conditions. Uh, I've, I've been living in, 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 Dar in, in Lancaster uh, for a couple of years, and Lancaster Castle was, I mean, not a place you wanted to end up in, um, really. Whether that, that said, though, I mean, in, in more seriousness, I mean, maybe as a subtext, were they trying to kind of impress him? Um, yes, they absolutely were. Uh, and they did an awful lot of trying to impress him. And his jailers would sort of take him out for sort of day trips uh, in the various places that he, would, he was imprisoned to see uh, uh, the printing presses or the, or the navy and to inspect this, that, or the other. And he would have, like, he had a kind of a, a flow of guests, usually arist very aristocratic guests who would come and see him. And the, while I'm sure there was enormous hardship for him and his, and his, uh, his group of you know, uh, the numbers increase and decrease, uh, but uh, many dozens of people. You see, really from the beginning, that his 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 handlers are very concerned to make things pleasant for them, you know, and have they have things that like they have clothes shipped from Morocco, so they they can have things, you know, f you know and, and, and all kinds of things brought over to try and make life comfortable for them. Um, there was definite there was a definite element of carrot and stick. Um, I mean, that, that sort of anecdote I uh, mentioned earlier about this, this offer of, uh, of, a, of a palace in France or a, or a cell in, 
in Egypt is another classic case of this carrot and stick. I mean, one of the other um, uh, questions earlier remarked on the fact that some of his, some of his uh, contemporaries and even some of his followers did end up taking the carrot and did end up uh, being bought off and being happily bought off. Um, very standard sort of uh, imperial ploys, I think. Um, the fact, uh, wearing all of that in mind, makes the fact that he absolutely refused to remain in France for a day longer than he had to, I think, telling, particularly as regards the, the friend of France uh, account of things. Perhaps he was a, or, you know, uh, yeah, uh, I don't know, is that the sort of... <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm afraid we're going to have to uh, call, call, call the proceedings to an end there. Um, thank you very much to, to you, ladies and gentlemen, for coming along to this evening. And um, please join me again in thanking Tom for a wonderful presentation.